This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. This feels like we are like gathered together around the fireplace. It's around the, the moon. Fi- we put all the chestnuts and we set them on fire, oh, like set in the song. Them on fire, and the moon is like shining over the snow-covered ground. And it's not the middle of the day, which is not the podcasting not, time. No. What did you get for Christmas yesterday in the future? <laughs> Oh, snap. Because <laughs> we're recording this on the 22nd. Okay. And it's going to go up on the 26th. So, like, what cool thing did you get for Christmas, do you think, that you're really excited about right now? Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're going to talk about books later. Go ahead. I asked my mom for some touchscreen gloves and a new laptop bag. It was a very practical list this year. Do you think touchscreen gloves work? Uh, we're going to find out. I mean... They look like okay gloves, even if they don't work. Yeah, I've got a pair of pretty good gloves that suck as touchscreen gloves. I it's, see the options are either do that or do the fingerless gloves, and I don't know if I can carry off fingerless gloves. I, you always look like you're trying to be like a '90s punk. I I don't know why I feel like women pull off fingerless gloves way better than men. I don't know what it is. Just gonna put I just, that out. There. I think. I like the '90s punk look on a woman. Like it's like okay, that's a, they look, that's a it's place not, to go. It's not like a like a sexual thing. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a like I just think they can carry it off thing. Okay, sure. Like they have a. I feel like women can get away with more adventurous fashion choices than men can sometimes. Conventional finger, men. Yes. fingerless gloves can. Yeah, like yeah, typical men. We as, and we so as fingerless fingerless gloves like fit in that that milieu somewhere yes we as super square dudes cannot pull that off um i am i am thankful for that is not the holiday i jump forward about a month (laughs) i am well uh i am happy to have received if you want my real answer it's a bluetooth speaker i hope i got one of those because i could use one of those because right now i live a tween life where i just like play music out of my phone and you You put your phone in a cup and you (laughs) Jeez, which you actually have done. I don't put it in a occasion. cup. I don't put it in a cup. You've I, ever put it in a cup? I'm pretty sure. Put it up against things to make the sound bounce off, but I've not. Okay, same concept. Yeah, then. acoustics. You mean? Um, mm-hmm. But I'm also uh, looking forward to whatever delicious pair of socks that I receive because I love Ooh. new socks. New socks, pretty good. All right. We hope everybody who celebrates Christmas had a good Christmas, and we hope everybody who doesn't celebrate Christmas had a good December 25th. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about books now? This We haven't I talked do, about this, the whole concept of the show, right, where we read books 
that like yeah why don't you why don't you unwrap this for me yeah hey <laughs> we read books that like you should have read or you should have heard of or we've been meaning to read just ourselves like last week we were meeting to read a sexy christmas book so we did um yeah, and one of us usually reads it and talks about it to the other person and this week we have uh, a suggestion from one of our lovely Patreon donors. Andrew, would you want to tell us about this book while I look up who this person is? I do want to tell you about this book. So this is a tale for the time being, um, and it was published in March of 2013, written by Ruth Ozeki, who is uh, like an American-Canadian novelist and Zen Buddhist priest, actually. Yeah. And she's got like a, she's got japanese heritage she's born to an american father and a japanese mother i think you might have more um research on her background yeah she's like 60 i think this was this book before i forget was recommended to us by sarah thank you sarah thanks sarah uh yeah i i liked it a lot it was pretty it's a loopy book so we're gonna have a loopy conversation about it i think but uh yeah, she like was... loopy in the in the time traveling. When I say loopy, I mean like <laughs> looper esque. Okay, like, like as the mo- as in the movie yeah. Looper, JGL and Bruce Willis in a mm-hmm. diner. Mm-hmm. Also, Emily Blunt's there for some reason. She was born and raised in New Haven, uh, as we said, to uh, an American father, Japanese mother, well, Caucasian American father. Um, she attended Smith College and then would later travel to Japan. Uh, under a fellowship with the Japanese Ministry of Education, where she taught English, she, uh, you know, got more exposure to the language and all that kind of stuff. Um, she then came back and spent a couple years as an art director in like low budget horror, which is pretty good. Like that's like mm-hmm. late seventies, early eighties. Uh, some of the films she worked on include Mutant Hunt, <laughs> Breeders, Necropolis, and Robot Holocaust. So, you know, we all have our juvenilia. <laughs> These all sound like like title TBA movies that just like nobody thought of a better title for. In Mutant Hunt, 1987... Mutant Hunt. Uh, Z, a cold and vicious genetic scientist, discovers a way to alter harmless human cyborgs into bloodthirsty killing machines, which he plans to use for his own gain. That just sounds like Mega Man. Director, kind of like evil Mega Man. Director like and rated, writer. M, yes. Rated M for mature Mega Man. <laughs> and M for Mega. Uh, director mm-hmm. and writer Tim Kincaid uh, also made... Um, uh, breeders which i believe is about an alien that lives in the sewers under new york city that steals ladies and impregnates them it's either that or it's a documentary about the 90s band with kim deal from the pixies in it <laughs> they did that last splash song is pretty good <laughs> okay. or that last splash album cannonball is a song sure. anyway yes uh so go look up tim kincaid's uh filmography there's like things like you know, in the name of leather, or uh, Joe Gage sex files, or uh, wow, getting back into the sexy the realm red again, yeah, the Red Ball Express. Like I don't know, campus Whoa, what campus pizza? That's a good campus pizza. <laughs> it's a prequel to Mystic. Pizza. I can't vouch for how before it got mixed Mystic. Yeah, I don't know how many of these movies are like intimate movies, um, and how many of them are horror films and how many of them are both but you could go find out for yourself mm-hmm. um 
Ozeki then moved on to TV. She made some documentary films. She made an autobiographical film called Having Halv, Having the Bones, like in half. Halving. Like splitting them in half, yes. not like owning them. Yes. Um, and it was about her bringing her grandmother's remains home from Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, won some awards for that. And then she stopped making movies because she ran out of money. <laughs> so she started <laughs> writing books. I guess we can't all win the movie pr- prizes, yep. the Oscars, and get all the money uh, and keep making movies forever. Can I'll do it. Her debut was 1998, a book called "My Year of Meats," um, which got a lot I'm of critical acclaim. Into it, I'm into it. Uh, and then a an, year of meats. Another book uh, published in 2003 called "All Over Creation," which received the American Book Award. And then this book came out in 2013. As you said, she was ordained as a Buddhist priest uh, in 2010, and she splits her time currently between uh, Brooklyn and British Columbia, Canada, where she raises ducks with her husband, who's an environmental artist. Aw, ducks. Um, which is pretty cool. She seems to have a pretty active uh, speaking career as well as, as a teacher and writer. So, yeah, I think the other... Uh, we'll probably talk about how she's like in this book sort of kind of kind of um and then i guess the only other background i want to do is not even about Azeki, but it's about one of the like major I- impetuses behind this book which is the uh 2011 great east japan earthquake um which yeah so this is the this is the tsunami in 2011 that then led to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster which is probably most of why you heard of the tsunami like obviously the tsunami was like pretty bad but the Daiichi the Fukushima situation is like ongoing to this day yeah they're still having to like get rid of contaminated water and then yeah and i think i saw a headline that like on the somebody on in like Oregon found like radiation that they could trace to Fukushima and like items have been washing up in Alaska and stuff. And what was really tough about that, I'm sure it'll factor into the plot is that like it was, it occurred kind of in three steps where it was like first a terrible earthquake, which then causes a terrible tsunami, which then causes a nuclear meltdown. Yeah, Uh, it was pretty bad. And, and there are like, there, there have been a lot of, I think especially photojournalism pieces about, like when people around that area had to evacuate, they just had to go. And there, yeah. there's some stuff um, around Chernobyl with this too, where people just had to like, like they couldn't even, they grabbed the bare minimum they needed to grab and they left. And so there are like feral animals running around and livestock like still there. And like the, the areas around Chernobyl have mostly been like vandalized and, and sacked at this point. But yeah. the stuff around Fukushima is still at least as of a couple of years ago, looks like really just intact and, and haunted and strange. I'm yeah. I'm really into like ghost things, like ghost towns and ghost ships and stuff. So yeah. I find this sort of thing, like it's it's really tragic when you're like close in time to it. And it's like harder because it's five like, years old. Yeah, 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 yeah. Still feeling like the real world repercussions of it, but I still just think like the, like the, the idea of like oh what happens if all the people in an area just disappear like what what does nature do what you know i find that really interesting um and she just before we we're gonna hit a break and then we'll talk about the book proper but uh she was writing this book you know in 
2010 or so, and she was just 2011. She's just about to turn it into her editor, and then the earthquake happened. Um, and she uh, says, and then the earthquake in Japan happened, followed by the tsunami and followed by the meltdown at Fukushima. And suddenly when I was watching all of that unfold, I realized that Japan certainly would never be the same and that the book that I had written was no longer relevant. Uh, yeah, I mean, that I, I'm surprised to hear that she had to integrate it so late in the process because it really does feel integral to a, like the way that a lot of events unfold and like the way that the book creates some of the uncertainty around its around its narrators and, and the fate of its characters and stuff. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. she did a pretty heavy rework of yeah, it. I bet. <laughs> uh, so let's take a quick break, Andrew, and then we'll get on with the show. Okay. Craig, you're an idiot, right? I'm such a freaking idiot. You're so stupid. <laughs> and I don't I don't have any time to get unstupid. That's the problem. Yeah, that's my problem too. Is like I'm stupid. I'm aware I'm stupid, but I don't like how what? I'm so stupid. I don't even I don't know how to I'm so busy. I don't know how to solve my dumb. own problem. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, luckily, this week's show, luckily for us and for everyone, I guess, this week's show <laughs> is supported by the Penn State World Campus. It allows you to earn your Penn State degree online from anywhere in the world. Um, they offer more than 125 graduate and undergraduate degree and certificate programs, and they are ranked number one for online bachelor's degrees by U.S. News and World Report. Hmm. Um, Craig, who, who, what kind of person is this, is this opportunity good for? Well, it's a, it's a convenient, flexible online format, Andrew. So it's a great option if you are a dumb and or busy and or just busy, uh, working adult. Really any combination of the things. Yeah. Um, if you are like trying to advance your career, like do some professional development or you're looking to change fields, um, it's also a good way to like get a degree at your own pace. So you're not locked into, uh, like a three-year program that maybe you need to take more time with. Maybe you have kids or something like that, uh, or you have other professional commitments. Um, and if you just couldn't finish your degree your first time, as I just said, cause like life got in the way, like stuff happens. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't get the degree that you want in the field that you want. Yeah, like as as someone who has changed careers a few times and as someone whose dad took like two decades to get his bachelor's in engineering, <laughs> like I can really I can really appreciate the service that, that they're providing here. So um, if you want to find out more, you just go to uh, worldcampus.psu.edu and uh, they'll have all the information you need there. Again, that's worldcampus.psu.edu. Uh, Penn State World Campus is a world of possibilities that just happens to be online. Cool. What else you got for us, Craig? Oh, we should talk about uh, how we're supporting ourselves. <laughs> um, actually, based on years of support from our Patreon donors, we have just launched our new merchandise store. Um, so we have some totes and some coffee mugs and some stickers and bookmarks on sale at overduepodcast.com slash store. We say coffee mugs, but I suspect you could put pretty much anything in them, like liquid wise. Yeah. Or I, pencils or I don't know. Like, I don't know what you need to put in a mug. My neural pathways are rigid, so it's... Yikes. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, we've got that there... 
Um, we're doing shipping in U.S. and Canada, but if you're like, well, what if I got it and I'm like not there? Like, shoot us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. We'll see yeah, we, what we've we gotten can do. A, we've gotten a request or two like that already, and generally what's going to have to happen is like we'll have to do individual research, and then we'll tell you how much it will cost, and then you will tell <laughs> yeah. us to go away but forever here's, and never but email here's you again. But here's the <laughs> catch. You only have until January 31st for this first run of merchandise. Um, so we have like some limited stock right now and limited amount of time. Um, so please head on over to overduepodcast.com slash store. And also mm-hmm. we didn't talk about this last week, Andrew, we're going to be, uh, sending half of our proceeds to first book, which is a national nonprofit here in the U S that helps, uh, put books and other learning resources in the hands of kids who need them. Um, so we're, we're excited to kind of give back, Given the given the fact that this whole store exists because of yeah. people who have given to us, mm-hmm. so yeah, and it also if we fair. get kids hooked on books, you know, today's kids are tomorrow's teens. We're making some making some future listeners. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought it's about it like that. Good brand work, right? <laughs> it is. It's it works a, on a lot of levels this, for us and for everybody. We're playing the long con. Mm-hmm. So that's right. That's, by con, you mean completely above board, legitimate <laughs> business operation. Yep. Head over to overduepodcast.com slash store and buy some stuff to put some drinks and books in. (laughs) Andrew, what the heck is this book about, though? It's about time beings. (laughs) Whoa. And you might think that I'm making a stupid Andrew joke. Listen, I would think that, too, in your shoes. But no, like the the name of the book, A Tale for the Time Being, is also sort of a play on on words that that she messes with like a lot. She, she um, Ozeki talks a lot about like the concept of time and about like I don't know like people's relationships to one another and like reality and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, the um, the book opens with someone writing to you hi my name is now and i am a time being do you know what a time being is well if you give me a moment i will tell you a time being is someone who lives in time and that means you and me and every one of us who is or was or will or ever will be huh so she's a time being she's a time being she's a time being so let's back up a little bit um Please. this book is it's uh, so it was published in 2013, and it's sort of a response to a genre of book that was prevalent in like the 80s and 90s called the the assimilation or immigration narrative, where like somebody from another country would come to the United States and like have to cope with becoming part of that, you know, this great failed experiment that we call America. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, and so this is a return narrative where like somebody who was abroad sort of come back, comes back to the place where they came from or the place where their family has roots and has to deal with like getting back into a culture that they've separated themselves from. Oh, and is there, and I imagine there's a lot of being stuck in between. Yeah, there's a good, there's a good amount of that. So the book is prime it's mostly told there are a couple like epistolary things where you're reading someone else's letter or something but it's primarily told from two two perspectives there's this uh girl named now so nao she is a 15 year old who is living in japan with her parents but she um 
was she wasn't born in America, but they, her family went to America like before she was really old enough to remember anything about Japan. And they lived there for, you know, a good decade at least. Mm hmm. And so she's like she went there with her family. Her dad was a computer programmer who lost his job and then they had to go back home. Um, so she is like having to fit in at school and in society. And she's having like these uh, cultural and emotional and physical and, and lingual barriers that she's having to she's having to deal with. So that's one. And then the second perspective is from a woman named Ruth. And actually, so the. Now's perspective is first person. She's like writing a diary. Ruth's perspective is given third person from another narrator. Okay. Um, so Ruth is a uh, former New York City resi resident and novelist who now lives on a remote island with her husband, Oliver, uh, their cat whose name is Schrodinger, but they call it Pesto because it's a pest. Okay. <laughs> And also she's living there with her writer's block. So novelist with writer's block living on a remote island sort of um, with off with, with a husband of... who shares the name with Ruth Ezeki's husband. Yeah. And he also happens to be like an environmental artist. OK, so it's so Ruth she's, Ezeki. She's, yeah. <laughs> well, she's addressed. She's said that the fact that the characters share a name with her and her husband is meant to be playful and not like straight up self-insertion so she's obviously using a lot of examples from her own life in this book but it's not necessarily supposed to be like biographical and i and i think that actually is something that happens with a lot of um like asian american literature like um the joy luck club by amy tan is often read as like a memoir or as nonfiction, despite the fact that it is actually fiction. Like mm. it's, and, and maybe it does represent some like Asian American perspectives, but it's not supposed to be read as like, sure. Some stuff that actually happened to somebody. No, no. So there are and two in this book that will become obvious as we talk about it. Yeah. There are two quotes I found of her talking about this. One is that she actually credits Oliver with the idea of her putting herself in the book. Um, as the like transformation from the pre-earthquake novel to this version of the novel, as mm -hmm. a like you need, why don't you just put yourself in there so you could like work it out um, and figure out how to respond to it? And then she it also works for fan fiction, so why yeah, not, uh, why not a novel? And then someone had asked her why she put. I think this is a Goodreads interview. Why she put the Ruth character in third person and now in first person, and she says there's a. Uh, to create a little gap, there is what the third person accomplishes. Uh, and now that I'm talking about it, it dovetails with Buddhist practice as well. In Buddhism, we have a phrase, no self, that's like no hyphen self. The idea that we identify very closely with the self, but that we don't have an existence that is separate from the rest of the world. We can't isolate ourselves. Um, so yeah, it seems your your point about it's like, it is her in as much as she's a writer, that, and you need to have a writer in this version of the story, but it mm -hmm. does not need to be an actual autobiography of she yeah she's Ruth. keeping herself at just a tiny bit of a remove cool okay and is it is now's story like i know it's a you said it's like her diary is it mm -hmm. what what's the time frame there so the the time frame is actually really important to both timelines so um now's dad loses his job in the dot-com bubble burst so we're talking like late 90s early 2000s and then her life is further like 
her life that we are learning about is further shaped directly by 9-11. Oh, okay. So her timeline, we're talking about like very late 90s and early 2000s. Ruth's timeline, we're talking like 10 or 12 years later, um, just far enough after the tsunami and Fukushima that the stuff like that it comes up all the time. But also that like some of the stuff that we were talking about, like these these aftershocks where you're getting stuff washing up on the shore and, and like radiation coming like across the ocean where that stuff is starting to become like a a real concern and not just like a hypothetical thing. OK, OK. So the the way like. So as you're reading this, you first you at first think maybe, oh, she's doing like a multiple POV thing like she's George R.R. R. Martining this thing. Sure. And we're just getting one story from multiple multiple perspectives. But by the time you hop around a couple times, it becomes clear that um, Ruth is reading now's diary. OK. Or her like journal or whatever it is that you want to call it. And that's not apparent at the start. It's not apparent right at the start, but you do. So you get now first and then you switch to Ruth and in one of the very early Ruth sections, she's walking on the beach and she comes upon this like freezer bag that's got like these barnacles on it. But the stuff inside it is intact. So she finds this small, the small book, the small diary. Um, she finds like a Hello Kitty lunchbox and there are a bunch of other papers and stuff in there as well. Hmm. Um, a lot of it is in Japanese, like some of it's in French. And then the diary itself is in English with like some Japanese scribble in throughout. Okay. So not only do you have that like super obvious connection and it's like the, the now chapter after that gets to like reaffirming that, yes, this is what's happening because it's talking about like the same little book with the same cover. Like it's a, it's a copy of a real book that someone has like torn the pages out of and put blank pages in. Oh, neat. That's like a, Um, that's like a, it's either a really great gift or a really creepy gift. (laughs) Yeah, you, it depends like, on like how good the book that you've defaced <laughs> to make it happen is. And what have you done with the pages that you ripped out? Have you turned them into a bouquet? Have you eaten them? Have you turned lit like lit them on fire with a romance candle? Have you made them into origami, which is what happens with some books in this? Okay, that would yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, man, I don't know how important, like thematically, it's probably important that I l- remember the name of the author and the name of the book, but we're just, I think we're just going to skip it in the name of expediency because I don't want to pause and look it up. Okay. Um. So, and and then you get another, you, you really understand that you are actually reading this through Ruth's eyes when you discover that the footnotes in Now's chapters are actually be ri- being written by Ruth. So like you don't get them early on, but pretty soon after that connection is established, it becomes like she starts mentioning like Oliver and the cat and stuff. Oh, in the in, footnotes. And previously there have been footnotes that don't mention that. Yeah, or just like didn't make it clear one way or the other. And it does it does sort of raise the question like who is writing the footnotes for Ruth's part because there still are footnotes. Oh, okay. <laughs> but like that's that's part of the like one of the things this book really digs into is the blurring of the line between like writing and like the writer and the reader. Sure. Sure. And that is one way that, that she sort of does that is with these footnotes. Okay. So you're getting for, for most of the, like I'd say the first like two thirds or so of this book, you're getting now's story read by Ruth. So now has moved back to Japan with her parents, but things are not going super great. Like her dad, 
has like he was looking for a job for a while and then he lied to her and her mom about actually getting one but actually he was going to the racetrack and losing all their money and he slowly becomes kind of a shut-in and sort of suicidal and this book talks quite a bit about like how the Japanese view of suicide is just not quite what our view of it is. And I can, like I went to Japan in 2010 and I can affirm like from, cause, cause I had a friend over there who was teaching English for several years and I went and I stayed with her and we, and we went, and we did a bunch of stuff, but she was telling me as we were like waiting for a train that like, it is not uncommon for trains to be delayed because someone has like jumped on the track. Like that's just a thing. It's just like it doesn't happen all the time, but it's common enough that it's like there is an established routine that that happens to like get the trains running again. You know, like it's hmm. it's just a bit. It's their their view of it is is different from ours. So her dad is like her dad is suicidal. It becomes pretty clear pretty early on that she is suicidal now herself. And the point of this book is because now is trying to tell this story about her great grandmother, Jiko, mm -hmm. J I K O. Mm -hmm. um, and Jiko is like a, she's a feminist, kind of a radical monk who is 104 years old, probably. She kind of has <laughs> lost track. Okay, that's cool. And she like lives in this remote area and she's like full of wisdom, basically. <laughs> See, that's a reasonable ex expectation. You've been around but, that long. But, yeah. So, but as, as we're learning these stories about Jiko now also can't help, but like make it kind of a chronicle of her own life. So she's having a lot of trouble fitting in at school. Like as somebody who was American for a long time and who identifies as American, she's just like physically larger than most of these kids. She doesn't quite have a grasp on the language that they do. And as like a as someone who is perceived as a foreigner or an outsider, like she is just picked on mercilessly constantly hmm. and like physically to like cut and burnt with cigarettes. And, and like there's Ugh. a kid who sits behind her who pulls strands of her hair out one by one. So she has a bald spot on the back of her head. Uh. Um, it's very. Yeah, it's it's a little hard to read some of those bullying sections because it's just it's very it's a very exaggerated version of just like kids being terrible because they don't know any better or because there's nothing to like, I think well, there's when nobody you're, in their world yeah. to like stop them from, I think when you get to, that. I think when you get to that age, the don't know any better goes out the window and it's a, it's the latter. It's that there isn't someone stopping them or yeah. there are people enabling it either or it's like, yeah, there, and there are some people who enable it in this book, like, like the, teacher who enables it is a substitute teacher and probably the only thing worse than being a foreigner is being a substitute teacher so Whoa. this guy is like <laughs> this guy is like so desperate to you mean get. in the context of the book you're not in the context of the book and also in real life the only thing worse Ooh. than a foreigner is a substitute teacher andrew <laughs> yeah take that substitute teachers i don't i'm just I'm just a truth teller, Craig. I just tell it like it is. I, I'm a straight shooter. I don't... Okay. I'm just going to trust that everyone knows that you're being a goofball right now. Yeah, definitely telling a hilarious joke and not being serious. Okay. <laughs> 
now nobody knows what's going on. But yeah, this this teacher like the he is so desperate not to be the lowest rung on the totem pole that he enables this like picking on of the, of of now and actually at one point he starts like he starts reading her name on the roll and like pretending that she they can't hear when she answers because oh, the like game she, oh. like the game at that point is everyone is just pretending she doesn't exist so she's not it's a being rough. yeah like it's it's pretty rough for her okay so she's got suicidal dad bad time at school having a bad time fitting in sort of feeling suicidal herself and then so as we get these bits we flash back and forth between her and ruth ruth who is getting like more and more invested in this girl's life and who has actually started like searching for things on the internet like trying to find more about her and she's having a really hard time finding anything to like corroborate anything that's happening in this book sure um well yeah i can't imagine it's it's in the book it's not like also a blog yeah but she like like now makes reference to like oh here's an embarrassing video that these kids uploaded of me of like a fake funeral that they had when they pretended that i died whoa um here's a blog that i had for a while called the future is now that's a great name for a blog if your name is now oh that's pretty good (laughs) Good job, kid. <laughs> um, so in one of the earlier now sections, this is where you, this is where Ozeki starts playing with the concept of time and like the relationship of, I don't know, of like time and the written word and how the written word kind of transports you in a way to like another period of time. Mm-hmm. So uh, she writes now felt like a big fish swallowing a little fish and I wanted to catch it and make it stop. I was just a kid and I thought if I could truly grasp the meaning of the big fish now, I would be able to save the little fish Nauko, which is her full name. But the word always slipped away from me. I guess I was about six or seven by then, and I used to sit in the back seat of our Volvo station wagon looking out at the golf courses and shopping malls and housing developments and factories and salt ponds streaming by on the Bayshore Freeway. And in the distance, the water of San Francisco Bay was all blue and sparkling, and I kept the window open so the hot, dry, smoggy haze could blow on my face while I whispered, now, 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 over and over, faster and faster, into the wind as the world whipped by, trying to catch the moment when the word was what it is, when now became now. But in the time it takes to say now, now is already over. It's already then. Then is the opposite of now. So saying now obliterates its meaning, turning it into exactly what it isn't. It's like the word is committing suicide or something. Hmm. So then I'd start making it shorter. Now, ow, oh, oh, (laughs) until it was just a bunch (laughs) of little grunting sounds and not even the word at all. It was hopeless, like trying to hold a snowflake on your tongue or soap bubble between your fingertips. Catching it destroys it. And I felt like I was disappearing, too. So part of what she's doing in this in this diary is she's trying to write out this whole um, sequence of events that kind of leads up to her like meeting her grandmother and like learning all these cool stories about her, and she wants to like catch up to her present moment, huh? Like as she writes, and that's like, and so you get her writing that, and then you get in Ruth's like responses to the story. Like, even though there are tons, like, even very early on, there are lots of little time, like, little signs of what time it is in the diary and that it's, like, much further in the past than the present day stuff with Ruth. She starts, like, trying to do searches and, like, email around and, like, just try to find out what what 
is happening with these people. And it takes on an urgency as she reads further and like gets a, gets a real window into the mental state of both now and her dad. Cause at this point it's like, are these people okay? Yeah. Is there anything like, I did can they, do about it? Did they kill themselves? And, and as you get further in, you start to learn things that challenge some of the assumptions and the things that you learned in the earlier sections. And so Ruth starts to get a little like, I need to like, so, so Ruth has read, she has read now's book and she's read a bunch of stuff that was written by um, her great uncle, uh, Jiko's son, Haruki. Um, so he's referred to as Haruki number one um, because now's father is Haruki number two. Um, and Haruki number one was a uh, kamikaze pilot in World War II. And so what we've got from him is we've got letters that are written in Japanese and sent to Jiko and sort of sanitized in the way that a state might sanitize communications between people, like making it sound like everything is great and Japan is great and that sort of thing. Yeah. And we get a secret diary that he's written in French where he talks about what's actually going on. Hmm. So we get. So now is sort of throughout her sections getting more and more down on her dad and like thinking, oh, he's a loser. And if like he tries a couple times to kill himself unsuccessfully, once like trying to swallow pills, once trying to drop it, like jump in front of a train. And she is so like disgusted with how like weak he is that that she basically tells him, like, if you're going to do something, like at least do it right. Oof which is hard that because is, it's 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 clear that she still cares a lot about her dad and she like misses her dad from before just like she misses her life in America. Yeah. Um and she like she doesn't like this like sort of weak defeated person who he's Do become. they explore like why the family left Japan in the first place cuz I cuz it sounds like his reintegration you know, obviously, like he's not—he hasn't gotten another job, and so like there's a sense of failure just to the return. But is there a sense that he was like supposed to go off and do great things? Do they talk about that at all? Well, he's—he's he's a programmer, and so he goes to Silicon Valley in the '90s to like to find his fortune. Basically, that, okay. that's as that's as much as you need to know. Sure, sure. And um, and yeah, so because now is so young, she just like identifies as as American, and that's. Yeah, that's where most of the like American perspective comes from. It's like the parents are having trouble reintegrating into Japanese society, too, because of the way that Japanese corporate culture works. Like, yeah, yeah. If you just come back as a as an older adult out of nowhere, like you can't it's it's hard to get a job that befits your age and experience just out of nowhere and it's also hard to start at the bottom because you're not, you know, you're not at the place in your life where you're supposed to start at the bottom. Hmm. So that's part of why um, Haruki number two has has trouble finding a job. And when now's mom does find a job, it's sort of a godsend because it's so like it's so unlikely that she would get that job in the first place. Yeah. Cause she gets like an entry level job at a publishing house and then starts moving up. But like, she only got that job in the first place because she like pulled some strings and knew some people and, and okay. But it's, it's like hard to, it's, it's a little bit harder to, to do that. Sure. 
culturally speaking. Um, so she's getting more and more down on her dad and she, you know, she goes and she meets her great grandmother, Jiko, and, and she has all these great experiences over the summer. And she has this one sort of surreal experience where she meets the ghost of Haruki number one. Okay. Her great grandfather, her graf, her godfather. Yeah. And, and through like conversations with this like entity and through talking to Jigo and through finding some, you know, letters and things, she gets this picture of her great uncle as this heroic pilot who, even though he didn't agree with the war and he didn't, you know, he did, even though he's very similar in like in background and in appearance to Haruki number two, he's like much, he's much stronger as a person. You know, he's, he died a war hero and he did his duty even though he didn't want to. And, and why can't my dad be more like that? And so that's, that's the point where she really starts to get really just upset with her dad for like not, not doing better. Okay. So we get this all through now. But through Ruth and the she has somebody on the so the there are time intervals inserted into this story on Ruth's side because one she's trying to read the diary slowly so she can kind of read it like now was living it oh so she can like experience the same span of time yes okay and also she needs help from a couple different people in their little island community to like translate and interpret things sure and so that takes a little bit of time too so that's how like information that ruth theoretically has from the beginning is like parceled out to her as she reads through now's stuff so she kind of gets she kind of gets new information from these different sources at the same time as it's coming up in now's story that's cool okay i buy that i buy that as a as a character motivation as a writer trying to get into this character she's reading and also yeah. this girl who she's like learning is experiencing some heavy stuff yeah and sure. th- and there's this whole little little side story about you know ruth being a writer and she's spending all her time reading the story and getting invested in the story and it's like she hasn't really been working on the memoir, like the book that she's been working on for a while, but she is now reading the story and researching it like instead of writing. Okay. Um, so at around the same time as now comes to the conclusion that Haruki number one is some great war hero and that her dad is a loser. Um, Ruth gets this the his secret French diary translated and it becomes clear that like the letters that he wrote that now has read are they're very they're sanitized and they're mostly lies. And oh. so not not even like lies but it just it doesn't tell the full story. So Haruki number 1 is like he's very he is conscripted toward the end of the war when it's clear that Japan is losing the nukes haven't been dropped yet, but it's clear that things aren't going Japan's way and they're just conscripting younger and younger people and things are getting more and more desperate. And so they've got this um, commanding officer who just abuses them like really, really terribly. Like the stuff that now is going through at school times, like a hundred just like being beaten until their mouths are so cut up that when he tries to drink miso soup like the salt make brings tears to his eyes yeah yeah um and he 
like through all these like beatings and, and stuff, he like goes from being afraid of this commanding officer to being like white hot and mad at this commanding officer to feeling sorry for this commanding officer. And at some point in there, he decides like, I'm going to go and I'm going to die because I'm a kamikaze pilot. But instead of crashing my plane into the enemy, I'm just going to crash it into the sea and I'm, and I'm going to die. And you know, it may, you know, maybe it'll lead to the deaths of more Japanese people, but like, I can't hate these Americans. Like I, you know, I, I don't yeah. agree with this war. Like I'm just not going to do it. Okay. And so like, this is where Ruth really starts to get like, Oh my God, I have to tell now that she's all wrong. Even though this stuff that now is writing about is happening like 10, 12 years ago. Um, and at this point, this is where like these stories start to intersect really weirdly. <laughs> okay. And stuff starts to get a little surreal. So everything feels pretty grounded up till this point. Like there are some conversations about time and about like Schrodinger's cat and about like observing something and making it exist just through like observing it. <laughs> well, what, when you were talking before, there's something, there's a Japanese term. I don't know if it's come up with any of our other books before called Mono no Aware. Have you ever heard of that, Andrew? I'm not sure. It's a it is a Japanese term for the awareness of impermanence. It's like a particular gentle sadness about the transience of things. Mm -hmm. Like if you I mean like cherry blossoms or other like blooms and then the subsequent fall and withering is a very good example. Like sadness around seasons is a very good example. Mm -hmm. But it's also just a like a mourning of the fact that stuff isn't forever yeah. um, at, at whatever scale you might feel it. It's there's a lot of it's come up a lot in, in plays that I've worked on. Cause it's basically theater sadness for, cause like <laughs> you do a play and it, it, it doesn't go forever. Cause on every play is Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And even then like that individual performance goes away. It, I still feel like, you know, you go like if cats can run for like 25 years or whatever, it doesn't need to be that good, right? Well, <laughs> I suppose that's true. But yeah, no, you're right. Like even like even if you go like so you can't go and see like the original cast of Hamilton anymore. Like pretty much all those people have scattered to the winds at this point. Even mm -hmm. when we saw it and everybody was still in it, like Lin-Manuel Miranda was sick. So we saw another version of that show. Like it's just. Like, you know, every individual performance is different. The show becomes different with different performers, different directors. Like, it's going up in all kinds of different cities now. And my understanding is that the that the play is great no matter where you see it and no matter who you see in it. But it's, I'm sure there are people who could wreck Hamilton if they tried hard enough. But, but, like, it's, yeah. <laughs> but it's still, like, close enough to the the artist's intent. Sorry, my... Like, I can just imagine, like, 2037, the... High school production of Hamilton <laughs> that people are gonna go see. Oh, there's gonna. Oh God, they really or like the be revival careful. version no. of Hamilton with all the crappy John Adams Here's songs back in it. We gotta be careful with the high school productions of Hamilton, guys. We gotta rein in our like high school theater directors that just like, well, we don't. We just got Jimmy over here. Like we just have White Jimmy. Like he could listen, be in the show. Like right. White and listen, White Jimmy could be in the show, but don't be afraid to slow that tempo down. Yeah, you don't be afraid to slow that tempo down, though. <laughs> don't push him. 
still push Jimmy. Maybe even like cut some lines out so Jimmy doesn't have to like remember all the stuff. He's just gonna look bad. He really is. Also, that was, yeah. the, that was the thing in our high school plays is like not everybody could sing, but you need you had a certain number of roles that needed to be and cast. A part so. for everybody in the chorus. Mm-hmm. So Mono Noire is just Hamilton sadness, is what we've discovered. Hamilton sad. Anyway, sad so Hamilton. the the book is getting timey wimey, is what you're saying. The book is getting timey wimey. So when Ruth first picked up this diary, she like paged all the way back in it and saw that there was writing like all the way to the end. Okay. But she gets so she gets to this kind of climactic point where now's dad is leaving the house with a bag full of charcoal briquettes so he can go sit in a car somewhere and light them and die. Oh, and she doesn't try to stop him. Like he even, he even says, he says this Japanese form of goodbye to her that implies, you know, goodbye and I'll see you later. And she she does not like return it with the correct response. Okay. And then she gets a call that Jiko is like dying. Hmm. And so she runs, she like lets her dad go off to his fate, goes to see Jiko. But before any of these things can be resolved, she discovers that like the last few pages in the book are blank now. Even though they weren't before. Even though they weren't before. Uh oh. And so there, there she embarks on this whole like basically a dream sequence where she is like part of this story. Ruth is where Ruth is part of, of now's story. Okay. And so she, as a character, she puts like the secret French diary of Haruki number one in like in a box in Jiko's room where it wasn't there before. She sits on a park bench and talks to Haruki number two, who's about to go kill himself. And she's like, Hey, your daughter needs you. Like she cares about you. She actually doesn't want you to kill yourself. She's just like a teen and she's having a hard time articulating her feelings. Okay. And when she like comes out of that dream, she discovers that there are, there's, there's more writing in the book now. And what does it say? Um, it starts with, are you still there? I wouldn't blame you if you'd totally given up on me this time. I mean, I gave up on myself, right? So why should I expect you to stick around? But if you did, and if you are still there, and I really hope you are, then I want to thank you for not losing faith in me. And she picks it back up. So she's I, so she's Deadpool, is what you're saying. <laughs> I guess. Um, and then, yeah, and so it, like, because Ruth put this, the secret French diary in there now, and... Haruki number two, discover it in the past and discover that Haruki number one actually was like, didn't want to be a war hero. Like he's not some great hero that, that Haruki number two couldn't live up to. And it's also revealed to now that she doesn't know everything about why Haruki number two left his job and why they left America. It turns out that he was developing game interfaces and the military took an interest in applying those UIs to like weapons, to military applications. And you find this stuff happening, like the lines between games and like military applications is, is blurry in the real world. Like there are video games that serve as like combat 
trainers. Yeah, I've I did a whole project in high school on something called America's Army. That was like a mm-hmm. recruitment tool. Yeah, and then geez. they talk about drone pilots now who are basically kids who grew up playing Call of Duty. Yeah. Yep. Using what is basically an Xbox controller to fly a drone. And kill actual people. Yeah. And so this is and so Haruki number two, like he goes to the psychology department at at a college and like talks to a psychology professor and he's trying to like ask him what a conscience is because he doesn't quite grasp the English. But Basically, like the military wants to take these game UIs and make weapons out of them for exactly the reasons we were just talking about. And Haruki number two doesn't want to. Like he keeps raising all these objections. Like, shouldn't we make it so these UIs can like impress upon people the significance and the heaviness of of what they're going to do? Because like one, he doesn't want to make killing fun. And two at some future date, like a lot of these people who are using these tools are going to realize on their own the gravity of what they did. And they're going to have to deal with it for like decades after that. Mm-hmm. And so he gets, you know, they, the military is not interested in hearing about this and the place where he works wants to keep the contract and, you know, make money and he gets, he gets fired. Hmm. And that's like that explains a lot of it. Like it explains why he becomes obsessed with watching like war footage after like the Afghanistan and Iraq wars start. Okay. Okay. Explain and it explains like why they left. It explains why he's so sad. And and they and now discovers like oh actually, Haruki number one and Haruki number two are already like this the same like coming at yeah the same coming at war from the same sort of perspective. Okay. And she, like, Jiko's dying wish to both of them is just that they, like, keep being alive, like, keep living. Hmm. And so they say, you know, they basically say to each other, you know, we have to, we have to do this. We're going to be okay. And immediately, like, like, after Ruth reads this section and, like, finds all this stuff out, oh, she does actually find out that, you know, now and Haruki are still, like, they're still fine. Now went to college in in montreal and now she's and she's like studying french and and um haruki number two is developing like this security and privacy software on the internet that like scrubs mentions of your name from oh weird okay databases online and stuff which brings another thing back home like it really ties together in a really satisfying way we're getting a little more spoilery than maybe we sometimes do but but I i think the book is the book is this is one of those books where like the journey is more important than the destination. Could you like ever, you're going to go to your grave, never meaning that. Yeah, probably. (laughs) So that's like the, that's the deal though, is like, it's, so it's creating all these questions about like the relationship between the reader and the writer, because in the end, who is the writer? Is it this, writer who has writer's block who's been reading this stuff the whole time or is this girl who is writing in this diary like the story of of her family and of herself and like who has the agency in this relationship is it the person who's writing it down or is it the person who's kind of reading it and making it real and like pulling it forward in time like it's you know those are the that's a lot of the stuff that it's doing and then you know there are a bunch of like cultural things that we can't really dive too deeply into yeah um well, that's an interesting point in just like how, what do you do with the stories of people 
who either did or did not survive like a tra- a major tragic event like that mm-hmm. and like what what do you as a as a creator or an artist want to do with those stories what are you supposed to do with those stories how do you impact them by retelling them in the first place mm-hmm. as opposed to just be like i found this book in the ocean read it like well, and that, you know, that comes up in, in the book, too, is um, some of that, like, some stuff about Japanese historical revisionism and sort of erasing the war from oh, interesting. history so that yeah. people who grow up now kind of envision Japan as, as this land that's always been at, been at peace. And, and that stands, I think it's often contrasted with the German approach to World War II, which is to take like the Holocaust and to create like a collective sense of responsibility for it. And I've actually seen that. I've seen that come up in like, as regards America is like the Japanese, like, or the, the Germans take like a collective responsibility for that because they want so explicitly for it to never happen again. Yep. Whereas, we like we're in between in, we're yeah we're like in even in two. cases like i think the the world war ii era like japanese internment camps is like a perfect example is we acknowledge that it happened we like officially apologized for it but it was not like it was not drilled into us in school it was not like it was not displayed to us as this like terrible thing that we did that should never happen again it's like oh world war ii is a good war and america won and it's great and we're awesome well and there's still a generate there's a a very large generation who are the descendants of the people who went and won that war and i think there's a, a, a booming generation if you will there was a there was a big boom and there was the generation a generation where up. many babies were born and as i don't, a part of and the I'm, boom i recognize that i'm <laughs> ge- I, <laughs> I recognize that i'm generalizing here but we're kind of just no i don't want to like i know we have tons and tons of listeners like across all age groups so i'm not going to do any like eat the baby boomer stuff here yeah. because that's that's as bad a generalization as you millennials as you millennials um, but like that but that generation is sort of like firmly at the wheel now and the the stuff from the generation before is like rapidly receding from living memory and yeah there was there were a couple as a result i think we're starting to lose some of those lessons yeah there were a couple stories i saw in the last as like leading up to the election and just after the election that were a lot of like average like what are our age brackets right now of people who were alive then or in school then versus not and Mm -hmm. just how do we carry this history forward in a way that's useful and how do we yeah like uh, okay all right it's tough like there are no easy answers to it but i think it's as with so many books that we read that as with so many books that are good and persist like you can always find something applicable you know you can always you can always take something and apply it like there's a universality to it that that makes it endure so i think that i think this is that kind of of book cool uh, I want to mention, I saw in an interview uh, her talking about the Kamikaze pilot. She drops the name of a book for anybody who's interested 
because I'm kind of interested to read this now after hearing you describe the diaries in the book. Um, it's called Kamikaze, Cherry Blossoms, and Nationalisms. It was mm-hmm. a collection that studied the diary, the diaries of kamikaze pilots, and it talks about them uh, not being able to like be conscientious objectors or anything like that. Um, but they were like really bright university students. So yeah, yeah, and and part of the deal with um, Haruki Number One is he does it partially because they will like posthumously increase his rank twice. And that means that his family gets a, like a bigger pension. And so okay. he's doing it partly for his family too. Like it's, it's just really, it's really tragic. Hmm. All right. But you like the book. I did know. I like the book a lot. I really did. Um, God, I'm going to be thinking about that. Like Zeno's paradox now thing for a long time. <laughs> That's really that's really smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are keeping a blog with a really cool name and you want to like send us the link, you could do it on social media. You could use facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. Per usual, I want to thank everybody who reached out to us on those services this week, including William, Sophie, Bovin, Grace, Emmy Bug, Tessa, Brittany, Player Two, Sarah, Blake, Barbara, Tysophene, Radiant Fracture, uh, With Fire and Blunts, Rob Zim, who's back, <laughs> uh, Celeste, Starfish Chick, Lucas, KW, Beautiful. Dave, Rebecca, Kate, Taylor, Steve, Anthony, CT, Josh, Kara, Obi, Woman, Kenobi, Stephen, Aaron, Charlotte, Sean, Yerbaswena, Michael, Graham, Melissa, Yelena, Nicole, Teresa, Gary, and Lori. You can also send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Andrew, if they want to know more about the show, where should they go? Um, there's a ton more uh, about the show up at OverduePodcast.com, including links to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and RSS. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. We're getting awful close to a 400, and that would be a great Christmas present, or I guess New Year's present for Craig. New and Year's also baby. for me. <laughs> um, they, we also have links to Patreon and to Spreaker, our podcast host, and HeadGum, our podcast network. And like we mentioned earlier, we have our merch store up. That's overduepodcast.com slash store. You still have a good bit of time. Um, we've got like over a month at this point. We're taking orders until the end of January. Um, so things aren't going to be quite as compressed as they were with the shirts earlier. We've got um, stickers, bookmarks, two tote bag designs, and two mug designs. And we are super happy with how everything came out. So uh, go to overduepodcast.com slash store. We have more information about the store and all the merchandise up there. Um, is there anything else? We've we've decided on January's schedule. We're going to post it to the site when this episode goes up because um, we've had a couple people ask about that. Yeah. And um, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope everybody had a cool holiday of whatever holiday you celebrated or no holidays. You just had a cool day. Um Thanks. My favorite Christmases have been like the Jewish Christmases where I've gone and seen a movie and gotten Chinese food. Those are good days. Yeah. Those are good days. Yeah. Um, and we won't, we, we will have a bonus episode coming out uh, on about Superman uh, before the month is out. But other than that, we won't talk to you guys until 2017. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So thanks for being a bright spot in 2016, everybody. Yeah, thank you guys. We'll we'll see you on the other side. Um until next year, try to be happy. <laughs>
That was a HeadGum Podcast.